Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see the fellowship. I, I enjoy it, and uh, I hate to, to, to cut it short, but I know if I run over that, I, that I'm the one that would get in trouble over it because my wife is teaching in the back, and uh, so if, if I hold you guys late, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. So. My name is Stuart Holland. I'm one of the elders here, and I get the privilege of sharing the Word of God with you this week and, and next week, and then, and then Ken is back, so sabbatical is not permanent. So There is hope still, right? Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So we are in the book of Galatians, and um, I'll be reading or, or teaching from Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9 this morning. So, so far in Galatians, we've seen Paul defend his position as an apostle, and then he defended the truth that salvation is by grace and not by obedience to the law. It's not by works, it's by grace. In last week's passage, he actually used a a confrontation with with the Apostle Peter um, to illustrate how legalism can creep in if we're not careful. In this week's passage, he's going to continue to address this, this issue of legalism. This week, he's going to be talking with the Galatians themselves. I mean, we're going to continue to see that both salvation and sanctification are by grace. They're not by works. Now, most of you have probably seen game shows where, like, the, the Price is Right, for example. And there's curtain number one and curtain number two. Well, curtain number one or curtain number two could have this new car in it. But then the other curtain's going to have something of much lesser value. You don't have a clue which one to pick. It's a guess as to which one holds the new car. Well, in Galatians, Paul is contrasting the gospel of grace with salvation by works. So which one should we follow? He's not going to make it guesswork. He's going to explain both of them to us in detail so that we can make the right choice. It's not guesswork as to which one we should follow. I'm going to begin by reading Galatians uh, 3, 1 through 9, and then I'll give each one of you a moment to pray silently for God to prepare your hearts and minds to receive his word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Christ, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Spirit to you 
and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, If you shall all the, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Please pray silently for God to use his word for your good and his glory. Father, we do praise you for your grace, your mercy. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and holy, eternal. You are righteous, omniscient. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given that reveals your truth to us and your plans for us. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us understand your word and apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for the redemption that we have through him that we could not earn with our good works. Father, we thank you that Christ died on our behalf. He took our punishment so that we could have his righteousness. Father, I pray as we study your word this morning that you would help each of us to discover truth that would transform us and glorify you. We pray this in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul's continuing to reveal his passion for the gospel as well as his love for the Galatians in this, in this letter to them. He was personally involved in, in the planting of these churches in southern Galatia on his first missionary journey. And he saw that they started on the right track. They started with the truth that salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but they're getting off track. Um, several years ago, I was running in a race. It's called the Texas Independence Relay. You're going to think I'm crazy when I describe it to you. It's a 200-mile relay that goes from Gonzales to Houston. Gonzales is where the Texas independence movement started 
and the San Jacinto Monuments where it ended. Uh, it's not an individual race, it's a relay. There were eight of us running. So you run like four to six miles at a time, but you run through the night. So it's, it's pretty crazy, but it, it is a lot of fun. Um, I had the privilege of running in the middle of the night through Columbus, Texas. Now the path is, is fairly well marked, but you start going through towns and there's lots of little turns and I missed one of the turns. So I'm just running along and I get to the edge of Columbus and there's no one around me and it's like, okay, I am off track. Fortunately, Columbus is relatively small, so I only had to backtrack about a mile to get back to where I needed to be. The Galatians had gotten off track in their Christian walk. See, they started off on the right foot with the gospel of grace from Paul and Barnabas. But then they'd been pressured into this obedience to the law as a requirement for salvation from what we'll call Judaizers. They were falling into this trap of requiring obedience to the law as not only a means for salvation, but a means for sanctification as well. Paul had taught them that grace was the means for for salvation and sanctification, but these Jewish leaders that came after him They'd misled them into adding this works requirement. Let me reread the first couple of verses there from Galatians 3. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Paul calls them foolish. Foolish is is thoughtless or mindless. Um, We often ask, what are you thinking to someone who makes a poor decision? And that's kind of what he's doing here. What are you thinking? Their thoughtless decision was to think that self-righteous actions could add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. There was nothing lacking in his death on the cross. Paul actually mentions, he asked, who bewitched them? Which implies that some kind of spell or a a spiritual influence took hold on them to lead them astray, to lead them off track to lead them to think, to foolishly thinking that works were needed for salvation. They were basically learning that Christ's death was not sufficient. And that's a heretical comment. Now, I like to define religion as man's attempt to earn God's favor. Now, if you define religion that way, Christianity is not a religion because genuine Christianity is based on the finished work of Christ alone. It's not based on our our personal effort. But other religions, and I, I won't name them, but you can all think of them, 
they require works or obligations, rituals, giving, all sorts of different things that are required to earn God's favor. Maybe it's five pillars. or uh, you, can, you can think of them as you think of different religions. None of these works on our part will ever earn favor with God. See, self-righteousness always falls short of God's standard. God's standard is perfection. We all know the, the New Testament verses about this, but in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to say Solomon wrote it. He may not have, but Solomon wrote, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's from Ecclesiastes 7. And when a person receives genuine faith in Jesus Christ, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It occurs at that moment. Paul is reminding the Galatians of this when he tells them, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, obviously, it was by faith. They hadn't done anything to earn the giving of the Holy Spirit at that point. The indwelling Holy Spirit is a gracious gift for believers. It's not earned by good works of any kind. I'm going to digress for a moment. Now, I'm going to say that salvation includes three different phases. For a current believer, one is in the past, one is in the present, and one is in the future. The past is called our justification Justification, it occurs the moment we receive genuine faith in Christ for our redemption and we are declared righteous. So that's the past part of, our, of a current believer's salvation. The present part is called sanctification. Sanctification, it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, typically through the Word of God, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And that is what's occurring now in the present. Now, the future part of our salvation is called glorification. Well, that's a future event when we are separated completely from sin and we are able to fully enjoy God's presence forever. Now, I believe all three phases of this salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification are by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to receive that gift. We don't earn it with works. We receive it by faith. So why did I bring that up? Well, the next few verses in Galatians Paul is going to shift from, from our justification to our sanctification. I'll begin in, in verse 3 and read verse 3 and 4. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
So Paul, as I mentioned, has shifted from justification to sanctification. The Galatians were foolishly thinking their works, he calls them the flesh, were perfecting them. They had experienced persecution as believers, so I think their, their works were difficult. They were being used by God to sanctify them, but it was a gracious act of God. It wasn't their, their self-effort that was leading to sanctification. He's clearly teaching that sanctification is as much an, an act of God's grace as our justification. Now, Paul's first missionary journey was recorded in, in Acts 13 and 14, much of it. Um, there was a city called Antioch, and in this city, Paul and Barnabas encountered some severe persecution. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Acts 13, beginning with verse 48. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. This persecution likely continued after Paul and Barnabas left. There's no reason to think it stopped. So those believers in Galatia were going to be persecuted for their faith. At a later stop in, in Lystra, Paul was actually stoned by these same Jews. And I'll read, this is from Acts 14, beginning with verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So there's severe persecution going on in multiple cities, for those who follow the gospel of grace. So perhaps they were thinking, look, if I place myself under the law, maybe this persecution will stop. These, these violent acts show how severe the opposition of these Judaizers was, and it justifies Paul writing such a, a harsh letter, a strong letter that he wrote. How should we respond to opposition to the gospel? Well, in our study of Matthew, we talked a little about that. In Matthew 10, um, Jesus instructed his disciples concerning opposition. I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent." And innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, 
For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all by my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So how should we respond to to opposition? He instructs them to, to bear witness before them. To say the words that God will give you at that time to share the gospel message. If after you share the gospel, they continue to reject it and oppose you, there comes a time when you move on and go to the next city. So how does opposition impact your service for God? If you think someone's going to reject the gospel, do you even share with them? I, I know I'm guilty of, of oftentimes trying to, to evaluate the soil before I sow seed on it, looking for good soil to sow the seed. But that's not what Christ told us to do. We're to sow seed on all the ground and let it bear fruit where it will. Paul then brings up God's work among the the Galatian Gentiles that led to their initial conversion. This is uh, reading verses 5 and 6 in Galatians 3. It says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God... Paul reminds the Galatians that God had done among them miracles when they received the gospel of grace. These are recorded in Acts 14. Um, I'll read a few verses from the beginning of Acts 14. It says, Now at Iconium they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. See, God responded to the persecution that occurred that was driving people away from the gospel of grace with signs and wonders that confirmed the gospel of grace. These were not consequences of their obedience to the law, but acts of grace. Paul then brought up Abraham. He, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Uh, the full verse says that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this definition to me 
shows us that this is definitive proof that salvation is by grace through faith. You see, Abraham was counted as righteous in Genesis 15, that's back when he lived. It's 400 years later before the law was given through Moses. And it's also 10 years before he was even circumcised. So he was not saved by works. He was not saved by obedience to law. It wasn't even written yet. He was saved by faith. Scripture records several instances of Abraham's disobedience. He, he did several bonehead things, which I won't get into. But, um, but he's actually mentioned twice in Hebrews 11. I like to think of Hebrews 11 as the, the faith hall of fame. He was mentioned twice in there. So moving back to Galatians 3, I'll read verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So one of the heresies that these Judaizers were attempting to to teach the Gentiles, is they had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Paul is, is referring to salvation as being a son of Abraham, so that's where that comes out of this verse. He correctly states this is a false teaching. He states it's those of faith in Jesus Christ who are called sons of Abraham. To be a true child of God, a son of Abraham... It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, all people are born with a sin nature. So if we try to earn our salvation with self-righteous works, we are always going to fall short. In Romans 3, Paul wrote, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because of our sin, redemption is what we require. We need to be redeemed, to be made righteous. But the law doesn't have a provision for that. Unless we're perfect, then we don't need redemption. If we've sinned, which we all have, then we need redemption, and the law didn't provide for that. So let me illustrate this. So if I say I'm a perfect driver, and I'm not, but if I said I was a perfect driver, but then I got a speeding ticket, well, the law, I broke the law, I could no longer say that I was a perfect driver. I, I got my first speeding ticket before I was 16, so... Fortunately, I haven't had one in many years, so I've, I've learned as I've gotten older. Um, God's commands, the law, 
It reveals our need for redemption. It doesn't provide a way of redemption. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the means for redemption. If you've got questions or doubts about your redemption, please see one of the church leaders. They would love to help you understand the gospel of grace. If you are a believer, then who has God placed in your life that needs the redemption that Jesus Christ offers? We all have family members, neighbors, co-workers, other students. Uh, We've all got people in our lives that don't know Christ. God has graciously saved us and then left us here to spread that good news of Jesus Christ to others. The next Paul quotes from Genesis 12 that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. See, this gospel of grace, you could say, well, it was originally the Jews, but coming through a descendant of Abraham, but it's available to all nations. So that includes Jews and Gentiles. Praise God, because I think most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. He points out the critical element is faith. Salvation is is by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by our works. Works are not needed to earn God's favor. We're saved to do good works. They're evidence of our salvation, but they're not needed to be saved. So the recipients of, of Paul's letters probably had a couple of questions at this point. It's like, What's wrong with adding works to grace? Are you telling me that obedience to the law is wrong? Is it even sinful? Well, the obvious answer to that second question, is obedience to the law sinful? I'd say no, it's not sinful. So then why is adding works to grace a problem? Why is Paul making such a big deal about this? I'm going to draw a distinction using the word motivation. So what is your motivation for observing the law? If your motivation is to glorify God and worship Him, then obedience to the law is is a good thing. If your motivation is to earn God's favor because you don't think Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, then that's a problem. That's the motivation that these Judaizers were trying to teach the Galatian Gentiles they needed to do these works in order to be saved. Requiring works for salvation is basically saying that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not sufficient. And that is a heretical statement. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is essential 
for him to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, propitiation is a big word that basically means satisfaction. Jesus Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God for sin. He did that when he died on the cross. He lived a perfect life so that his death could be the propitiation for our sin. He could be the substitute that bore our sin so that we could be forgiven. In 1 John chapter 2, John wrote about this. He said, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Later in in chapter 4, John wrote, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. See, Jesus Christ fully satisfied God's wrath for sin so that we could be forgiven. If one requires works for salvation, then they're saying that Jesus didn't fully satisfy God's wrath. If he wasn't the propitiation for our sin, then we're left to try and earn God's favor with self-righteous works. We've already talked about how that's going to fall short. Only perfect obedience is acceptable. So that leaves us with this need for redemption. Believing Jesus fully satisfied God's wrath for sin, that he's the propitiation for sin, is an essential belief. Paul expressed this clear truth that Jesus is our redeemer and that obedience to the law can never earn our salvation. The gospel of grace is the right choice. If you're trying to earn God's favor with works, you're always going to fall short. In today's passage, Paul has made several points to emphasize that salvation's by grace through faith in Christ alone. In verse 2, he pointed out that giving of the Holy Spirit was by grace and not by works. In verse 4, he stated that persecution was due to faith and not works. In verse 5, he reminds them that the miracles God performed to confirm the gospel were by faith and not by works. Then he used Abraham as an example of someone who was declared, had salvation by grace through faith and not by works. We've also seen the underlying truth that Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. So so what are some principles from this passage? I've come up with three. So first of all, life is, is filled with different influences. These Galatian Gentiles had influences by Paul and Barnabas. And then they were getting influenced by these Judaizers. 
we need to use discernment to understand who should, whose advice should we follow, whose influence should we follow to avoid being misled, to avoid getting off track. When we do get off track, it's essential for us to turn back to God and get back on track. Secondly, God allows and he uses different experiences in our lives to equip us to serve him. So when we encounter opposition, I didn't say if, but when, we will encounter opposition to the gospel, we should view it as an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to share the truth with this person. It's not a roadblock. So how are you using the experiences in your life to glorify God? Finally, faith and not works is the means for salvation. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sin. He fully satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. So who or what are you relying upon for your salvation? If it's your own works, we need to talk because it's going to fall short. Grace is the only means for true salvation. If you have questions about your relationship with God, please see one of the leaders. We would love to talk with you more about this gospel of grace. Our closing hymn today, I asked the the music group to do this hymn. It's called Jesus Paid It All. The chorus of this is Jesus Paid It All. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. In his commentary, Chuck Swindoll wrote this hypothetical chorus that the Judaizers would have sung. And I have to share with you, it says, Jesus paid a lot, but a lot is left to pay. Since the bill is infinite, I'll work till judgment day. Aren't you thankful you don't have that work till judgment day in front of you? Jesus Christ paid it all. The law has no clause for redemption. It leaves you with a constant striving to earn God's favor. So as a result, under the law, there's no assurance of salvation. There's no eternal security. Have I I done enough to maintain my salvation? But grace offers us both assurance of salvation and eternal security because it's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, it is finished. God's Son bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. Through Jesus Christ, our sin debt is paid in full. It's not based on our righteous works. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Please bow with me.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. When we were separated from you due to our sin, you graciously sent your Son to be the perfect sacrifice that redeems us. You then sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and graciously mature us. Thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you that Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice, fully bearing your wrath for sin so that we could be redeemed. We can have assurance of our salvation and the eternal security of knowing that our sin debt is paid in full. Help us to be transformed by the truth of your word so that we live lives that glorify you. Help us to recognize the opportunities that you provide for us to serve you and spread your gospel of grace to the lost people of our fallen world. We pray this in the holy name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, praise God that Jesus bore it all. He paid our full sin debt for us. Galatians closes with this verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You are dismissed.